Rye Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have A Quiet Place, starring John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, Millicent Simmons, and Noah Jupe. Written by Brian Woods, Scott Beck, and John Krasinski, and directed by John Krasinski. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're wrapping up uh, another film review cast. The future doesn't look so bright looking at post-apocalyptic or end-of-the-world-ish type scenarios with the previous films we've had. And we've had some some doozies that we've we've gone through. It's been some fun watches for for us especially. It's it's getting you out of the house and, you know, come come have a watch with me as we have breakfast and drink some coffee. So <laughs> see a different face and have a different conversation. I yeah, guess. Th- yeah, there you go. But we've had a Escape from New York, Mad Max, Fury Road and wrapping up today with A Quiet Place from 2018, you know, kind of continuing on with, you know, doing horror in, in, in unique ways uh, from like 2010 to, you know, still going on. You know, you know horse had a, a pretty good heyday with uh directors tackling on interesting subjects and um this isn't krasinski's first uh, directorial effort but i never knew he he had uh, this interest in horror and and willing to tackle a subject like this somehow in the last decade or so the talent that usually stayed away from horror i think has sort of moved to horror Mm -hmm. and i think you're getting a better quality product uh you know horror for a long time was just starting or b-list or kind of disregarded in the talent aspect of Hollywood. And we talk about it sometimes with the respect it doesn't get at the Academy Awards all the time, but to sign Emily Blunt and John Krasinski, Mm -hmm. you know, we can go to the conjuring and just on down the line with the amount of talent that Mm -hmm. now has been put into horror. And I think a lot of that has to do with Blumhouse. This isn't a Blumhouse production. This is platinum dunes, which is their influences surely on this Michael Bay. Yeah. And, it's it's crazy to me that it took this long because the horror audience is very loyal. Mm-hmm. They'll see just about anything, which means there's a really high propensity for you to make some money in it. Mm-hmm. And if you do it well, then you're going to draw more people into horror. And it, it just seems that it took a really long time for it to get here. Uh, you're not going to find a huge slate of talent, A-list actors in horror films. Mm-hmm. And we're in that place, though, now. It's pretty um, cool. It's helping, yeah. Yeah. So let's start off with the with the drink here, finishing off hopefully the yeah old Forester mm-hmm. 1897. yeah bottled in Bond. We'll All have right. to return to this when it's time for James Bond. Sure, here's yeah. To you. So cheers. Shh, drink it quietly. <laughs> <laughs> the lesson of this film is I don't think I could be as quiet as these people were. I'm just kind of. <laughs> Naturally, Clydesdale might my, my way around the house, or you know, if I have flatulence, like it's it's hard to hide. So Jesse the dump truck, exactly. So let's go ahead and get get the show started here, and let's start with our flight question. effective musical score i hope we get to talk a little bit about that today 
Well, let's make it a point to do that. Excellent. All right. So let's let's start with our flight question. You know, being that this uh, the quiet place does involve beings of extraterrestrial descent or these humanoid creatures, um, it got me thinking. You know, there's been some great cinematic aliens throughout its history, and my question to you, Matt, is: What are the top three? aliens or extraterrestrial beings that you wouldn't want to mess around with checking at number three for me is the pod people from invasion of the body snatchers <laughs> birthed in a cold war era um there's a historical context to this movie which i think is really interesting and even like up to the donald sutherland film which i find very very alarming <laughs> i think it plays on one in a good the, way yeah 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 do you like that film oh that's my favorite version of the okay series. Yeah. yeah me too there's a sum total of the mass of lack of humanity bastardized and turned into these pod people that eventually is going to get you. That's a common trope. We see that with zombies and sometimes with like natural disaster horror films, not my favorite by any means, but with the the pod people, if they can hide in plain sight and you're not quite sure who is and who isn't, I think you're also working on, a plausible deniability that I think elevates the horror. Mm -hmm. We don't really know why the pod people are here other than just, I guess, to show up on earth and take over everything and harvest space. That's sort of nondescript insofar as why they're here. Mm -hmm. You can't defeat them though. Yeah. The person that you are allied with that you think is your buddy goes in the room for a minute to brush their teeth or go to the bathroom and then they come back and they're a pod person and you don't know any different. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the great reveal in those films is always when they find one of the the birthing centers, if you will. Yeah. And there's just so many of them, and it's all the faces they recognize being multiplied in mass. I just think it's always terrified me. Mm-hmm. It still does today. That's good. Yeah, because yeah, who do you trust at that point when the person you seemingly knew still looks the same, but they're acting different? Right. Yeah, and then it just becomes the horde of masses chasing. I always remember both those films have great like chasing through the streets film of the mob of pods which is, you know, pretty well done. That's a good choice. Yeah, thank you. What's your third? My number three for me, I, I, I told you about this yesterday, actually. Um, a couple of days ago, I just uh, rewatched uh, The Blob, uh, the original from the 50s with Steve McQueen, and that's going to be my number three. Pretty formidable opponent, this gelatinous thing that as it consumes more and more, it gets larger and larger until it's just the size of a building. But how do you defeat something like this? I wouldn't want to be cornered by The Blob because it's just going to devour me and... And then that's it for me. I'm toast. So done pretty well in that. And I think it's 1958, Steve McQueen. It's one of his first film roles, I think. He was real young. But uh, there's a, a remake in the late 80s from Chuck Russell who had did, done uh, Dream Warriors. That's actually pretty good. They actually go the Thing remake approach with that one and really do some great practical effects. But yeah, I'm going to go with The Blob. It's it's a pretty, it, it's a different type of extraterrestrial alien um it's not like a humanoid it's just a a shape which is terrifying to me some things you can lock yourself away from and it allows you safety or sanctuary the blob's tricky because it can seep in through any little crack or crevice and it's just going to consume you yeah and then once you pin yourself into an area and have hunkered down Mm -hmm. there's no way out because it's on the other side of your escape yeah so yeah you're screwed Basically, you're screwed. Exactly. And then, how do, like, what, do you blow it up? Because then you just kind of have the the thing element in Carpenter, where you blow up the thing and the. Well, if you blow up the blob, you make tiny, a tiny, million tiny, more blobs, little blobs. Yeah. 
better just to keep it as one and find a way to uh, what they end up doing in the moving is freezing it yeah Yeah. they take it to the antarctic and just drop it off Mm -hmm. you can go party with the thing down there (laughs) (laughs) boy won't that be a party yep number two this one's strange and i don't think it's going to be the one that you think it is from this film but it's from the day the earth stood still okay and it's not the robot but it's klaatu Mm -hmm. the original Mm -hmm. um I don't want to mess around with that thing because it's you trying to prove to him that humanity is worth saving. Mm-hmm. That's an that's a very formidable <laughs> prove, like very formidable formidable point to prove. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't know how you do it. Just spending enough time out among the masses, you're going to come into one of the ten percent of the idiots. Like there's ten percent of the population that are just idiots. Mm-hmm. And all of the good that you can show, then in a heightened situation where the spaceship has shown up and everyone's in a weird state, it's funny how contemporary this discussion is right mm-hmm, now, huh? Mm-hmm. You're going to see the worst of mankind, and how do you prove that mankind is salvageable? And it's all on you, and your benevolence is the only way. And you can't really tell Klaatu to go pound sand, because yeah. that'll just piss him off. Mm-hmm. I love the way he's delivered in the first film, too, because he's very gentlemanly and stoic. Oh, yeah. And then I love, you know, I love it. That relationship between the elder and the younger. Mm-hmm. And I just think that uh, that's one I wouldn't want to mess around with because I don't think I can present a good enough case to him or it yeah. to prevent Armageddon. Yeah. That's a good one. That's really good. I like the day the earth stood still. I do too. The original. I, I actually never even saw the remake that they it's, did. It's fine. Yeah. It's just that Klaatu character is so terrific in the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that I love that film too. Excellent. All right, number two for you. Number two, I'm actually going, I don't think they have a name in, in this. I'm just calling them the aliens, but it's the ones from Independence Day. Prim- primarily because I think their their plan of global takeover is actually really well thought out. Uh, the way they kind of ascend on Earth, uh, uh, descend on Earth with all these ships positioned on all the major metropolises throughout the world. And then at, like, at a certain you know, like countdown they all just strike and just essentially wipe out most of humanity in that one blow but they're formidable in that you know they're kind of hard to defeat you know at one point in the film one of the i think the secretary of defense is like very like pro nuke and he's like the only way to take this thing out is with the nuclear weapon so they actually do it in houston and they have like they have shields on their on their big ships it does nothing so how do you get into this opponent like they, they have to tackle it from the inside out through the mothership and you have the big ships, you have the small drones, uh, then you have like the alien itself within the ship. Like you get to see an entire society of extraterrestrial with with those aliens. And, and that's just a really fun film for me. Oh, great film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they look good too. Yeah. It's a good looking alien. Creepy, slimy. You always remember that scene when they're operating on, on the one there um, with what's his name? Brent Spiner from Star Trek. And like it like has like all like the white, like the, it's like tentacles like wrapped around his throat yeah that was that one's always been one of my favorites i I, yeah i wouldn't want to mess with those aliens me either yeah most of the time science fiction doesn't scare me Mm -hmm. there's moments in alien that are like jump scares Mm -hmm. but for me the most terrifying science fiction film that involved an alien of all time is the one that i'm going to choose here i don't know what this thing is called Mm -hmm. other than maybe the devil okay but it's whatever the hell the alien is in. Ooh, I know what you're going to Yeah, I knew you're going to pick that one. <laughs> uh, I was really, I'm not going to lie, scared out of my wits when I saw this film in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, a strange movie that just got killed 
with critics reviews, terrible Rotten Tomatoes. Um, they had to basically cut the showtime or the length of the, the runtime on that film for some different reasons. There's some production stuff that went into that, that I think made that movie not what it could have been, but whatever the heck is on that ship when it comes back from hell yeah. or wherever it's been mm-hmm. that takes over Sam Neill and the rest of that crew, Lawrence mm-hmm. Fishburne, mm-hmm. Jack Noseworthy. Yep. You all even know who Jack Noseworthy is. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't want to mess with that. That's funny that you mentioned that. I've actually listened to a couple other podcasts in, in the last couple of weeks that have done episodes on Event Horizon. Really? Yeah. And yeah, people people talk about it. That, that, that movie's a wild ride. And it's weird because that director, Paul W.S. Anderson, the rest of his filmography isn't great. Like It's resident- kind of in that space, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's what else, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing some research on that film uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. They're making that into a television series. Mm. They launched it in 2019. I don't know if it's stuck in development hell right now, but okay. there's a an episodic television hmm. series coming. Interesting about Event Horizon. Yeah. If you all haven't seen that film, I would highly recommend seeing it. And critic reviews be damned. Mm-hmm. Again, they cut out about 25 to 30 minutes of the actual chosen movie that they wanted to show by the director. Yeah, I think there's a director's cut floating out there that I think we'd like to see that. I don't know if we ever will see it. You know what I mean? I don't think we will either. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. Excellent. What do we? Is that thing Satan? What the hell is yeah, the it's, it's, that? Yeah, it's hell. It's yeah, the, the devil. Yeah, you may as well. Yeah. Yikes. You want to guess what my number one is? I, it's one of two. It's either Alien or The Thing. Yeah, it's it has to be Alien. Primarily because I've always had this this conversation in my head that I asked you this week, which is, you know, E.T.'s all cute and cuddly, and even traditional aliens like the ones in Fire in the Sky are kind of, they, they look a certain way, but to me, the, the xenomorph itself, and the geeker one from the first film, looks truly terrifying. Like if that thing walked by the threshold right there behind you, Man, I'm out of here. I ain't going to try and make peace with that thing. And then on top of that, it has the best defense mechanism of any of these things. Even if you try to kill it, it's just going to like leak acid all over all over anything. Uh, I'm very fascinated by the, the, the life cycle of this creature, as we talked about on our alien episode. But just the look, it's this like elongated black and then... Uh, when when you the translucent when lit properly you see like the the skull of the xenomorph's head and then the double mouth and then the fact that they got this seven foot four actor to play him like i have a real problem with really skinny angular lanky double jointed people like it, that really kind of gives me the creeps and to me that's what the the alien is yeah i wouldn't want to run into that thing I'd run into the predator if I'm not on his like hit list. He might just pass me by, but the alien has no hit list. If I'm in its way, it's taking me out. Yeah, that acid blood is tough. Mm-hmm. Even if you kill it, you're going to destroy everything around it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and again, there's no shortage of the best looking monsters of all time. You're going to find that top of the list. Yeah, but the way it's presented and how formidable it is is a force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. you brought up something and i actually kicked this around and i'm not actually trying to be funny with this okay can i do an honorable mention here go ahead, good it's actually et <laughs> no i'm not i know you're gonna laugh i'm not here i wouldn't want to spend a lot of time with him either the three things that i mentioned that you mentioned are all essentially fairly rapid in your demise should you come into contact with it the et character is essentially 
this non-communicative turd incapable a peaceful helpless thing that you have to sort of protect and with that you bring in what i think is almost more terrifying than instant death and that's the slow process of death through the feds mm-hmm. And that part to me is another, like if I'm at ET, I'm just moving on. Whether yeah. he's as cute as can be and eating my Reese's Pieces or because. He's not cute. like that. He's not. <laughs> and so you're going to form this bond with this thing that can't communicate with you. That doesn't really have any way of protecting itself or you. And the feds are any minute at your door. In spacesuits. God, dude, that to me is. <laughs> I, I really did kick around the idea of ET that's versus pretty, versus Klaatu. Um, that's pretty good. At least Klaatu can communicate with you. At least he's, he's not afraid to tell you what the plan is. Yeah. I, I, I'm i not kidding. It really is. Like, I gave it some serious thought, ET. That's funny. Yeah. Interesting. Like, I, I love all those choices. Some pretty great film aliens throughout history, and that's not even getting into the stuff that's in Star Wars, Star Trek, and all that expanded lore that is science fiction. So... Excellent. Off to a great start. Let's get to happy hour time and our review breakdown of A Quiet Place. Quiet Place opens up on day number 89 of so-called incident and i like this i like that we don't this is what i'm a little nervous about too with quiet place part two because i know the film's opening on day one just based on like the trailer i like that we get in really late with this film and it's not what's told to us it's we're seeing the aftermath through newspapers missing posters the the wreck of what this town was obviously you know the supermarkets are in a state of despair and they kind of look like how they do today <laughs> a little bit yeah. but i like that we get in late it's i can kind of catch up with with most films when they when they do this type of practice uh what do you think i like that too mm-hmm. the trick when you have any of these natural disaster armageddon like <clears throat> films is there's two villains it's whatever the invading element is and then the rest of society as they turn on each other mm-hmm. for the most part in this film that's not in play there's one moment later on where we kind of see the trouble of man trying to deal with man and i think with quiet place one we're going to be right in the middle of that yeah and it's just that's exhausting to me Mm -hmm. i'm just that story is just so tired and told Mm -hmm. but i also so back to what you asked me yeah getting in on day 89 we are late enough to where they've created essentially a basic survival system yeah and none of it has to do with their ability to communicate the way we do with words. Mm-hmm. So you're already at a disadvantage because you've taken away the easiest way for people to communicate with each other verbally. And you also then remove one of the senses from the audience, which puts them in a weird place throughout the duration of the film. Did you see this film in the theater? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Do you remember it being remarkably quiet when yeah, you watched it? which is weird for a, a film audience. Uh to be quiet, you necessarily have one of the things I always have to tell my mom when we go see movies together is halfway through, she'll just like get the popcorn bag and just be like, it'll be a quiet scene. And she'll just be like, like into the bag. And I'm like, mom, shh. Oh, yeah. 
But yeah, that's like this film too, in a nutshell, up until maybe like a little past the halfway point when it's fairly, you know, more auditory than it is. I, I think this is very interesting. It's a film that relies mostly on on American Sign Language and subtitles to communicate dialogue through. So if that's how we're communicating, most of the, this film then has to work on a visual level, which is which is different. You know what I mean? You really have to pay attention to the breadcrumbs they're literally showing you, uh, the sand path to kind of help, help mask uh, the, the footsteps to and from the house. You know all these, you know, just different visual cues of how they're uh, how they're communicating. It's all very fascinating to me, and I like it because it does remove that um, that auditory sense from us. The fact that this got off the ground with John Krasinski as the director on what I think is a spec script. Well, I have a little bit of information about that. So the the two writers, uh, Brian Woods and. Yeah, Brian Woods and, and Beck, they uh, yeah, they wrote this spec screenplay while they were still in school. At USC? Uh, I don't know what school they went to, but they, they had conceived the ideas. They're from the Midwest, so they're familiar with like farm work and this entire environment, which is why they staged it there. But it kind of floated around a little bit, and Krasinski got his hands on it. And yeah, it was written on speculation. And then, yeah, as he kind of, he kind of put his hand in it to kind of tweak some things, and then, yeah, they hired him on to direct and they wanted him to be in it. And the concept appealed to him, you know, of parents protecting their children, especially as him and his then his now wife, Emily Blunt, in the film, they had just had their second child. And she told him, you really you really need to, to do this film. And, and she read the script on on a plane ride. And she says, I have to be in this yeah. with you. Like, yeah. we have to kind of do this together, which is interesting. I don't I don't, th- I don't know if you yourself, Matt are as much fan of the office as as I am. The only thing I know John Krasinski of is is Jim Halpert from The Office and it's a fairly comedic he's the lovable doof on that show and I've always seen the comedic turn with him and he was this close to playing Captain America than I think most people kind of know out there. I think this is a great choice to have him come in and and have his hands on here and and talk about just kind of reeling in expectations of taking that comedic side I always saw to him and giving him a serious tone with a story that I think he handles masterfully in this, in this film. I'm really bad with horror, Jesse, you know that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a genre that is probably not my go-to. And a lot of times the, the things that people find to be traditionally great comedy, Mm -hmm. I don't get like, I I couldn't do the office. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I I would rather go pick weeds than I, I hated it. Yeah. But I do know John Krasinski from the other stuff that he's done is Jack Ryan mm-hmm. and the appearances here and there, uh, whatever that military film was, I don't even remember, 12 Strong or something like that, whichever one, I've, I don't remember which one he was in. Mm-hmm. But the thing about John Krasinski for me is he's really likable. Yeah. And I also really like him that he took this spec on and that as a burgeoning director, I think really did a great job of handling something that had to be challenging. That's you have to keep the set very quiet and there's a lot of people on set. So to get them all at the same time so that you don't have any auditory noise and then to be able to deliver the parts with minimal dialogue. I bet there's 15 to 20 lines of actual dialogue in this whole film. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty monumental achievement 
for a young director to take this on. Yeah, and it's mostly, for the most part, it's single location. It's this farm, a little kind of meandering in the woods and in this shop here at the beginning. What also is remarkable about that is that Platinum Dunes was the company that chose to produce it because that's Michael Bay's company, and he's anything but quiet and subtle. I think I told you, too, like anytime I see Platinum Dunes come up before the movie, I'm just like, oh, God, like this isn't this is not a good because they did the the texas chainsaw remake and the friday and nightmare remakes and those are oh my god but with this one it's yeah it's this is those two ideas don't compute yeah the serendipitous way that this comes together krasinski finds it on spec and then gets his essentially wife to play his wife in the film so they have good chemistry Mm -hmm. and then Michael Bay, of all people, decides to produce this movie because I guess the Transformers 7 wasn't in production. or yeah, not yet. He had some It's a strange time. fit, but sometimes those are the best fits. Yeah. He's such a, such a great, good-looking, post-apocalyptic dad. Like, we made a comment in the film, mm-hmm. which was, man, that guy can grow a beard. I'm jealous. <laughs> I can't grow a beard like that. Yeah. But you need to kind of have that look mm-hmm. because the last thing you're worried about is who's going to you know, take care of your, your, your hair needs yeah, exactly. in a post-apocalyptic world. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's interesting. It too. just fits. And, and then the family dynamic that they have, I really believe that this is an actual family. They struggle with some of the family dynamics that everybody does and they play those out in the screen. And all of that is to the credit of the writers. Yeah. And it's an unenviable job. Like Matt, if they, if, to write a movie, first of all, that's difficult enough. But they were saying, okay, why don't you write that? We want you to direct it to okay, and I got more of a hand in this. Oh, you also have to like be in front of the camera as well. Other than like Orson Welles and like Clooney on the occasion, and there's probably a few others that I'm forgetting. Yeah, that's that's hard work. That's you have really have to be involved in everything and then be able to pass judgment on yourself in the scenes that you're in, too. Like who's gonna tell you when? Yeah, this is, this is a great job, and I think it's shown really well in this opening scene here where they're looking for medicine for the the middle child, and as they're leaving, the youngest boy, I don't even think we're even ever told his name, wants to play with this spaceship, but you know, even playing with this toy is a hazard to the entire family with whatever is out there, and we're not even shown that yet. And as they take the batteries out and then the sister gives him the toy back, he takes the batteries and we have this tragic turn on the way home. Within the first 10 minutes, we kind of get the stakes of what's happening out there with these creatures that prey on sound. And this family's done like a death blow, like in front of everyone's eyes. It's it's kind of a hard opening, but it really sets the tone for me as horse should. This is the opening of Jaws. This is the, the, you know, the opening, you know, 20-ish minutes of like mid of, of hereditary, you know, these films that, you know, really set the tone with how the film's going to play out for the next uh, duration of it. When their youngest gets the NASA spaceship, <clears throat> rocket ship, which is going to play out later in the film too, so this is actually a good setup. When he gets the batteries back in that ship and it makes the noise and that creature attacks, they also do something really smart, which is give you enough of the impact of what the monster is so that you are on a heightened state of awareness with it. Mm -hmm. But they don't really reveal. It goes by so quick you don't actually see what it looks like. I love that. Me too. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we've probably said a hundred times on this podcast, which less is more. Mm -hmm. And give it to us in small increments because I don't want this movie to be the wolf man. Yeah. And by that, I mean, is once the wolfing is done, the initial change has happened in front of the camera. 
everything else is downhill. And I don't, I just don't want it to be modern horror tends to want to delve into overshowing and overusing its antagonist. And if you have a cool antagonist, you definitely want to show it on camera more. But for those filmmakers uh, that have restraint to kind of keep it in the shadows, keep it in the dark, keep it between trees, behind cabinets, uh, I think it plays. I think it plays a lot better that of of what's what's hunting them. Again, Alien. Alien's the benchmark for me. Alien and Jaws, really. In a post-apocalyptic period where that was a very popular genre, what we tended to get during that time period was the female protagonist championing the cause of the downtrodden against X, Y, or Z. And they did a good job for a period of time of creating worlds where that played. What I thought this did... Are you talking about the Hunger Games? And Divergent. Yeah. We could go on. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't a female, then it was like a teen. Yeah. And, And I think that was very popular. Maze Runner. Right? Yeah. Okay, you're with me. Mm-hmm. What this did is the same thing in a much more traditional way with, I think, as unique a world as the Hunger Games presented. That's the sand path that you have to walk on because your feet will make too much noise on the leaves. Mm-hmm. And Jesse, if that is a deal breaker and that's what's going to sound the alarm for the antagonist to chase you down, like breaking a twig, boy, you are really up against it. Oh, yeah. And they do a good job of not quite getting you to winter, but it's late fall fallish and you have no <clears throat> shoes on so again just and that's actually going to matter too like you can't wear shoes because they make too much noise and i bet emily blunt wishes she's going to have a pair of shoes on here in about 25 30 minutes maybe 40 minutes mm. it's all set up really really subtly and smart and it all makes sense the rocket ship makes sense and why it's called the rocket ship and why they know where the rocket ship is and why they don't wear shoes and i just think we talk about setting the fuse for the bomb and letting it have a nice slow burn because it creates conflict within the viewers. And this movie is terrific at that. Mm -hmm. So we pick it up about a year and a few months later. And, you know, we kind of get like the, the daily of this family, you know, doing laundry, just kind of meandering out in the field. Uh, John Krasinski is about, I don't know any of these characters names. I think in the credits they have names, but I don't think we're ever really told the names. I'm just going to call him dad. Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to go through the different SOS signals from all over the world to just kind of get any kind of bearing on if anyone's still out there and they're just coming up dry. But I, I like how they pepper stuff throughout this house too, especially in the interior threshold of the house certain um, sections are painted and those are the safe spots to step because the other parts of the floorboard will make creak and that's too much man i'd be stumbling all over the house you know what i mean like it's it's really hard it's a real this is a really difficult world to live in um you'd want to be able to talk you'd want to be able to no crunchy foods at all as they have dinner they're eating on leaf big leaves salad and fish you know quiet foods Peanut M&M's, croutons, pretzels, <laughs> chips, any any of that. That's out. You can't eat that anymore. I love that the first on your list was peanut M&M's. Yeah. You like those, I don't do, you? yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No almonds. No almonds. Oh, no. I hate almond joy. <laughs> or mounds. Uh yeah, this is a this is a difficult world to live in. I don't know if I I think I'd rather kind of be in Mad Max kind of in on the Fury Road than to be so limited in what you can do. So we kind of get there's, I like that signal scene too, where he lights kind of the fire. And even in their small valley, this area that they're in, and I, I believe they're in New York, if I, what I've read is correct. Upstate New York. Mm-hmm. 
that there's still some survivors out there, but everyone pretty much has to keep to themselves. And it's a lonely, isolated, kind of sterile world. It's not enviable at all. Life has devolved into a series of tasks that you complete before the day ends, and then you go to sleep to wake up and do them the next day all over again. Mm -hmm. Krasinski's or dad's consists of lighting the torch to make sure that the other people respond to the lighting of his torch to see, like as a check-in, as a community check-in. Yeah. Uh, Mom's doing the laundry. That's that's the phone call. Yeah. He can't even use phones or anything like that. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. The dinner is kind of the crowning moment of the evening, but even that is done with significant, significant labor. I guess we're doing some sort of underground steaming process to cook the fish and the, the vegetables, it looks like. It's rough. Man. It looked good, though. It sure did. Yeah. We had a comment about that. It's mm-hmm. my smoked salmon. Um, you just are getting through today so that you can try to get through tomorrow. Yeah. And I think that's fun to watch in film or interesting to watch in film. Mm-hmm. Be hell to live in real life. Oh, definitely. But they seem to be doing an okay job with it. Mm-hmm. They even have a system of lights that we're going to come to find that's really oh, important. I love that. I do too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say a day after the initial it's loss like of four or 70 something. So essentially a year and a month later, mm-hmm. they're doing okay. Mm-hmm. They have carved out, an existence for themselves. I mean, there's enough joy in their life to where you kind of made a comment about it when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what I do, but they're playing Monopoly, <laughs> which kind of fits because why play something that's only going to take 15 minutes? Cause all you have is time on your hands. And that's certainly a long game. It kind of fits, doesn't it? It does fit. But man, if there's a game that would just kind of just make you want to pull your hair out and just flip the board and have a tirade on your opponent, it's that game. But even with that, they're not allowed to play with real game pieces. Yeah, they're, they're playing with like knitted, like little like icons. cloth pieces. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause even is too much. That's too much. Golly. Yeah. Interesting. So we got to address the elephant in the room and any criticisms I've heard of this film. And this is the big one here. And that's Emily Blunt. Mom is pregnant and about ready to pop too. Now, a lot of people say, why in God's name would you have, think about having a baby in this world where you can't be, you know, you can't make sound. What I say to that is, first of all, this is a family that's experienced a big grief moment in their lives. And they're all kind of secretly kind of blaming each other, whether it's, or the kids think that whether it's, I gave him the the, the ship or the, the young boy, if I hadn't been sick that day, we wouldn't have been there. Emily Blunt later, I had room in my arms to carry him. I don't know why I didn't. So they're all kind of, you know, dealing with this really heavy burden on their shoulders. So I can see why they'd want to like fill that void again. I totally get it. So can I add one more piece to that? Yeah. I agree with what you said. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Fill, refill the void. And then in a world that's filled with that much pain, mm-hmm. you're going to try to tell me you're not going to seek out some pleasure? Yeah. I mean that. for the In the, in the base <laughs> act of sex, I mean it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like everything sucks. You're bored to tears. Yeah. Everything maybe, hurts. Maybe you're he, especially hurting even more because your kid's gone. And maybe he just didn't pull out that day like... <laughs> yeah, but I think that's that's ridiculous criticism is like, wh- why would you? Uh, okay, so let's apply that yeah. to every circumstance <clears throat> in the history of mankind. Mm-hmm. And you tell me, critics, 
where that's ever played out to any reasonable fruition because the answer is it never has. And and then the other idea too, if this truly is the post-apocalypse and society is never going to recover from this, are you just going to let mankind, humankind, womankind, are you just going to let that all end? Or would you attempt to procreate and kind of continue on humanity? Look, man, let's play it out this way, okay? In December-ish of next year, do you expect there to be a spike in the amount of babies that are born? That's nine months from today. Probably. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <clears throat> so the critics on that, like, why would you do this? Yeah, exactly. We can say that all the time. Why would you? Why would you? And you know what? That has never worked. Abstinence has never worked. Yeah. So- I, I get the criticism. Yeah. But I don't consider it a plot hole. That's what a lot of people think. It's not a plot hole. But I think the film addresses it really well. They're taking a lot of precautions. They're soundproofing this basement. They got a little baby box that's going to be equipped with oxygen that's soundproof. Like they're taking the necessary steps to deal with this. The only thing I didn't notice in this one was any dogs. I guess dogs are just out. I guess so. Probably because they got killed a long time ago. Yeah. We see what happens to that raccoon. Mm hmm. I don't think having a baby does anything except increase the stakes. <clears throat> and if this movie centers around a family dynamic, which it clearly does, mm -hmm. what role does little brother play? What regret does big sister have? Mm -hmm. Why can't big sister take the role of what dad wants little brother to do, et cetera? Like we're playing these family dynamic roles in a very base way, which gets down to a domestic model. Then it makes sense that mom would have a kid because that fits the domestic model. Like that didn't trouble me one bit. And oh, if yeah. you lose that, if she's not pregnant, mm -hmm. then you're going to lose. I think what's one of the better parts of the moment of the movie mm -hmm. when they're under siege and she's in labor. Yeah. Oh my God. Could you imagine? I, I, I can't cause I've never been through it obviously. Yeah. But trying to have labor quietly. Yeah. There's no way. There's no way. And your foot's hurting and your foot's hurting. And if you make a noise, it's curtains for both of you. So let's get on to the, the, that's kind of the first day. That's the first day. That's the first day. Oh, my God. Day two is, you know, kind of going through the motions again. And they're still, these are great parents. They're still trying to educate their kids and teach them division. Like, most families would probably be like, oh, no, yeah, like, that part's out. <laughs> but let's um let's still try and, like, have some semblance of society Dad's gonna go to the to the river there to kind of collect his his fishing traps and kind of get what it, whatever he's caught. But then in the meantime, he's been making these you know cochlear amplifiers for the daughter's cochlear implant to help you know tap into the frequency that'll restore hearing to her. Now this this is a very frustrating thing for a lot of people, and in my line of work, I kind of deal with this stuff a lot. Um, they just don't work sometimes, uh, and that's kind of the. The, just the reality of it all and kind of the way the relationship's going, which is already kind of soured. He's trying, she feels the guilt, she feels neglected from him, but there's an attempt there to kind of repair those bonds. And it's not until it's really too late that they're fully repaired, but I think it's pretty well done with this, this little device that, you know, she either doesn't want and want, and it ends up at the end, it ends up saving the day at the end, right? which is pretty remarkable. But we get on to, to the, them catching fish. And I think a really, really nice moment and it helps alleviate the tension a bit with them able to talk for a little bit, masked by the sounds of the river. And I think you forget while watching this, just how crucial 
the human voice and dialogue is, and when it's gone for a set amount of time, it feels a little uncomfortable. To me, this is, this is the equivalent of when I watch a film like, like 1917 and there's no sequential cuts that I can pinpoint and I'm constantly like focusing and I'm, I'm waiting, but it's not coming. That's kind of like what this is, but for sound. So well said. Yeah. The soundtrack ends up taking the place of dialogue in this film. And you said it when we were watching the film, I thought aptly. The soundtrack does a little bit of two things. It creates a dialogue between the characters, but it also serves as an icebreaker to relieve some of the tension. And you said, what would this movie be like without any sound as far as soundtrack goes? Mm -hmm. God only knows. I'm sort of glad that it does. It's, it's more just sort of background information. Yeah. And I think it, it helps to shield in the audience's mind. It creates a barrier of sound that the aliens then won't hear the meanderings of daily life that could be enough to cause their internal alarm to go off to find the family. So I think it creates another element of disbelief that we can traverse because if is too much, mm-hmm. man, it's, it's over in an hour. Yeah. Like you're going to, you're going to cut a fart or you're going to burp or something. <laughs> you are, yeah. And it's just going to be curtains. Mm-hmm. So the soundtrack I think gives a wall for our characters to hide behind with just the necessary movement that has to occur. Yeah. Otherwise you just have people sitting in a room signing and that's not a movie that I care to watch. Mm-hmm. So it's twofold in that it takes the stakes for the audience up, maybe threefold, relieves a little bit of tension, but also heightens the tension with the way you change the score per the moment in the film. And third, creates the wall that the characters can hide behind with the necessary movements they need to carry out any action so the movie continues as story. I think one of the places that's done really well is when she's taking the laundry back upstairs, Nick snags on the nail, and she pulls it up. But then the camera kind of pans in and when the, the soundtrack goes like, it does like this like ominous like, hey, that matters. <laughs> My only, like when it happens in the film, it's pretty great. Had the film drugged that out like a little bit longer to like maybe the final time that they go back down, you might have forgotten about it already. And then you would have been even more unexpected. But it's still a really great moment of foreshadowing because now everything's just going to like hit the fan right now. Because as they're coming back from their fishing trip, they run into this man who's lamenting the death of his wife. And I guess when your times come, you just have to scream and death will come to you. And all you have to do is wait about three or four seconds and these things come. Again, shown very well, like behind trees. It's not really clear what's really taking them, what the shape of this creature is. But yeah, even this that, that type of sound is bringing the hordes to, to take you out. The thing about the creatures is too, they're not going to eat you. They just view you as a natural predator and they just want to kill you. Their ears are so sensitive that we come to find they're very sensitive to any kind of sound and certain frequencies are deal breakers. So in a strange way, it's almost a merciful end to a pretty miserable existence. And if you remove your best friend, your wife, probably it kind of felt like the 55 to 60 year couple, right? That Mm -hmm. was sort of what they I think implied for Mm -hmm. the audience. Mm -hmm. 
what else is there? Yeah. You know, and we see versions of that all the time. So here's the couple that were married for 55 years and this one, God rest their soul passed and the other one's gone within six months. I get it. And again, it plays into a common relationship arc Mm -hmm. in everyday society. And so here's the thing though. John Krasinski, dad and son, who was reluctant to go on this fishing trip anyway because he was scared to death, Mm -hmm. come to this place where they find this man lording over his recently deceased wife with a fairly fresh wound in her abdomen, which seems to be the place where these these monsters attack is the abdomen. Mm -hmm. He's not ready to go yet. Dad still needs to protect son. Yeah. Grandpa, right? Yeah. The surviving widow, Mm -hmm. er is ready to go. So he pleads with him by putting his hand up to his mouth saying, shh, shh, shh don't, don't, don't. Cause mm. like, I still want to try to make this work. I still have a family and I still got to protect my kid. Yeah. And the guy most sort of mercifully just kind of gives it the F this yeah. shrug shoulders and ah. I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. But from that point forward now, the aliens, and we don't even know what these things are called. The mm-hmm. hunters yeah. are basically on stage nine of DEFCON 10 Mm -hmm. and they are in pursuit and hunting primarily for any outside source. This is interesting to me too. Mm -hmm. Can I say one more thing? Good. When we spend some time in the communications room or the strategy room, the war room for dad, Mm -hmm. we see lots of newspaper clippings and whiteboards and the, the, the onset, the genesis of a plan to fight these things, not finding any solutions. Apparently they have pl- very, very strong armor. Um, sound is the key. And there's been at least a, a rudimentary exploration of ways to get rid of these predators that are wiping out mankind. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> all of that in there is done in a really, really quiet way too. Mm-hmm. So he can't really communicate that information with anyone, it just ends up being posted in that room. So again, you're creating another element of isolation and that dad is given this task as he's figuring out some plan to try to get things back on the path of strategy. But in that, what we find is that these aliens who are so sensitive to sound essentially are as xenomorphic without being xenomorphic as they have an incredible armor on there that seems to be bulletproof. Mm You saying you're up against it is the most wild understatement that's ever been stated in my entire life. Like you are up against it. Guns aren't going to work. You can't make any sound. They're Mm -hmm. faster. They're taller. They're stronger. Yeah. Man, you're effed. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I think that is your advantage is they, I don't think they can see you. They can't see. Yeah. Yeah. They're like (laughs) T-Rexes. They have but. Way bigger arms. They, they, they sure do. So then we get it really here at the house when she starts going into labor, water breaks, and she's like, I got to go down. It's, it's happening. And then we get that moment where she steps on the nail and, and she handles it like a champ. I would have screamed like a little bitch. Like I would have been like, obscenity, let the obscenities fly during that. But she brings the hordes in. And what I'm reminded a little bit is some like some parallels between the velociraptors in Jurassic Park and these creatures kind of when they're like sulking about the basement here. 
And just, it's kind of like, I got to stay quiet. Or I can't let them see me type of a thing. And you're right. These things prey on, on sound. Like even a little, a little timer like that's going to totally set them off. But what it does is it does allow her to turn on the 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 emergency lights, which I think is a great visual. Those red lights, you know, as the only source of illumination to alert you that danger or something bad is happening. As she hightails it upstairs to give birth, and again, the restraint to hide the pain of childbirth and the the pain in your foot, so that you don't get killed. Like it's 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 really well done. She plays it. She plays it excellent. Again, without having the use of dialogue, you have to really be able to deliver. So the scene you just mentioned where we're seeing her struggle mightily with these terrible pains of the nail in her foot and then fear and then labor. And then the other part that does that really well, too, is when dad gives the daughter the 15th updated version of the hearing aid. Mm -hmm. And the communication between the two of them as they're not able to talk. And you can tell, even in that moment, his gestures are patient <clears throat> and steady and steadfast. Like It's mm-hmm. excellently acted, mm-hmm. delivered so well. You can feel her labor pains in this. Yeah. I, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Obviously. Maybe we should have had... You know, some people that might know a bit more about that. No, but you, you can tell just visually, just from the look on her face as she tries to hide, you know, as blood's just kind of seeping out of her because she's giving birth. Yeah, seeping the tub. And we go through this. I don't know if you do this, but I did this in the film, mm-hmm. which is could I have remained quiet in that with the stakes? And so if a movie's No, making, I already screamed like a little bitch when I stepped on the nail. So I'm dead. The movie's working yeah. because you are then testing yourself against a fictitious element with mm-hmm. imaginary characters and imaginary situation. You're all in, Jesse. Mm-hmm. And that is well, they, such a vote of success yeah, and they, for the they, film. They even So they have to create this diversion with fireworks, the rocket element. Playing uh, that again. Playing that again. But even Krasinski dad has to load a gun underneath like the comforter. Like it's yeah. too loud to load shells into a shotgun. And as soon as that's off, she lets out this scream of all screams, and then he's like on his way to like go save her. And last week, the the baby didn't quite make it in, in last week's film, but the baby survives this one. And then immediately, like as they're going to the the shack, the soundproof shack, it starts crying. And it, I think this is some, the look on his face just tells me we knew this was going to happen. We're ready for this. We just need to get there in time. And they do in it, like their plan just works like in the little cute little oxygen mask that they put on the baby and put him in his little baby box to kind of ride it out. And at they, and then they're able, because of this room so soundproof, they're able to have, this is the first conversation other than the the, the one at the, at the Water, river. Waterfall. Yeah. yeah. You're able to actually talk for the first time about things and kind of like update you on the situation. As the kids are like, <laughs> like in the middle of the cornfield at this point. The other thing too that I think having the inability to make any sound does is it slows down your actions. 
So if you take these aliens that are super fast or, or compared to the ability for humans to move significantly faster, and then you have to go through the prep to pull the mattress over the hole before you can escape or to put the gun underneath the blankets before you load it or any of the other numbered events that occurred that are slowed down by the preparation to, to diffuse the noise, then what you do is you also create another disadvantage for our protagonists. It just takes so damn long to get anything accomplished. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Yeah. You have to load the gun underneath the blankets, but you needed the gun 15 seconds ago. You have to seek refuge in the underground shelter that's covered by a mattress. But not only do you have to get in there quietly down the ladder, but then you got to pull the mattress over you quietly, which is heavy and awkward. And if you ever tried to move a mattress, good luck by yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a hassle. Mm -hmm. it, it just slows everything down again, which is if that fuse, if the metaphor of the fuse getting to the bomb creates tension in the viewer, and then through circumstance and film, you relieve that tension and that creates entertainment. Yeah then you have a nice slow burn that they're constantly struggling mm -hmm. against an insurmountable force that is sound and odds because it's just so slow. Mm -hmm. One of the strengths of this film, which is seems weird to say because it's a fairly, I want to call it a silent film because we still have a score and communication through sign language, but one of the strengths of this film is actually the, the sound design. And I think the creatures sound cool. Like they have like this cool, like predator velociraptor y sound. But even that, if you notice that, you know, this swinging door, once it like fully stops and we're totally developed, enveloped in silence again, is when we get the jump scare of him jumping into the grain silo. So as they're waiting for dad on top of the silo here, the, the youngest boy falls in and. I got to tell you, I've done some some research on these grain silos. Like falling into one of these things is is a death sentence. Like unless someone knows you've fallen in, you can't move. Or even if you do, just like you're going in and you're toast. Like it's. I think I don't know the stats, but more people than you think die per year in grain silos than you would think. Because <laughs> you drowned in the corn. You drown. Yeah, you're just you suffocate. That's awful. That's an awful death. So it's a great staging scene in a, in a horror film as they're both kind of trying to struggle. At least that door fell in to kind of give them some leverage. But then this thing jumps in there with them. And it's it's kind of this is the second time we've seen that the high frequencies of the cochlear implant when when the sound becomes too overwhelming, the, the frequency gives a feedback. And that feedback aggravates the antagonist, this this alien thing, enough to kind of make it get the hell out of whatever environment it's in. The question I had during all this is how many of these creatures have descended upon this family now? <clears throat> is the creature that's in the grain silo the same one that was tormenting mom and baby? Uh, is it the same one that was in the cornfield? You don't really know, and I don't know if it matters. It just seems that their range is very vast quickly. I think there was there was a 
like a sketch, a sketch or a marker drawing saying how many they've they've spotted and locate three. three confirmed. So they're at least dealing with three of these things. One's plenty. Mm-hmm. Three's even yeah an abundance of wealth or riches, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sequence in the grain silo is really good because sister who has been a little bit isolated mm-hmm. and probably bearing the burden the most. Yeah, yeah, her dad, but probably her, because she kind of, as much as I hate to say this, mm-hmm. and she's kind of a pain in the butt in the film, too, for about the first half, especially for me. Mm-hmm. She she really does have to figure out how to carry that that crucifix, that mm-hmm. albatross around her neck. It's yeah. heavy. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, she's, you don't want to say it's a disadvantage because no one really speaks, but she's at an even more disadvantage. She's further isolated because she can't even communicate with the tiny little bits of that. You, she can't, she's, she's deaf. And she can't even hear the assailant. I, the, the sound, the sound design does a good thing. Whenever it's focused on her, it's completely quiet cut out as you would be hearing it from her point of view. So her brother falls in the silo and she's got to find a way to get him out. So she kicks the panel in so that he's like, you said some leverage to buoy himself up from the corn. And sure enough, here comes another one of those things into the silo with them. Mm-hmm. So you're drowning in corn with essentially some sheet metal to keep you from drowning. Mm-hmm. And this thing is stalking you in there. And we get to one of the more convenient, thank gosh, pieces of medical technology in this, and that's the frequency of the cochlear device, mm-hmm. penetrates the alien's auditory senses and looks like it might be something that's going to make their head explode, not to be too Mars a taxi with <laughs> rock and roll, <laughs> yeah, but not far from that in a, in a less comedic state, right? Yeah. I love the way, too, that she has to deal with the pitch piercing Mm -hmm. her ears in order to let that thing Mm -hmm. feel the effects of it as well yeah it's really interesting right because those are super heightened hearing abilities yeah super repressed in her and they both suffer Mm -hmm. from the same thing and she's got to continue to be the sacrificial scapegoat in that regard Mm -hmm. to defend her family yeah i love that yeah what a nice arc for her. Yeah. No, real really really well done. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how that continues on into the second film. I want to talk about that for a minute, but I don't know if this is the time. Um what film two? Yeah. <laughs> well let's let's talk about that, but not now. Let's okay. keep going. We're doing a good job with the story, so let's keep going. No, yeah. So then you so the creature leaves, they're able to kind of get out of this grain silo in the giant hole that he's left behind, and they reunite with dad here. But there's another one on their tail. And yeah, they got to go hide out in this in this truck. And Krasinski doesn't Krasinski dad doesn't see the one on top. And like you said, I think these things attack like just the abdomen, or they just like claw and slash at you with these like like Kruger claws almost. And I think they deal him a pretty fatal blow across the abdomen and send him flying. And then as this creature attacks the kids, I think. I think he's going to die. I think he knows he's going to die. So I think he says the thing I can do, and especially after Emily Blunt just gave him like the burden of all burdens, go out there and go protect them at all costs. Like we've lost one. We can't lose anymore. You got to do this for us. So this is his moment for, for that. And I think if I, the only thing I can do is give my, my, my children time and by all means, I'm, I'm going to do that. I think this is a really well done uh, part of the film.
thrilled we're all well done with the music too. It's kind of just final parting, but what's the big part that happens here in this sequence? Well, before I answer that, I'm really glad you didn't look over at me at this part because I was a little <laughs> bit misty. And I know that sounds ridiculous. I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not being bombastic no, for the yeah. sake of that. Yeah. Here's this this dad communicating with his daughter and in a similar situation, not really, but I have that. Mm-hmm. Again, I find myself in the position of thinking, could I handle that burden? Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's going to go out like a champion, you know, when he tells her, I love you, I always have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that he's basically telling her goodbye. It's heart wrenching. Let me tell you why it works, I think, so well. And this is why film just always does it for me. And I love reading books, but you you can get this in a book. Like as he's doing this and the music's doing, doing that piano thing. The camera's like pulling in on him as he's signing, I love you, I have always loved you. And then it's pulling in on her. And like we're getting closer and closer and closer together until like he lets out that primal scream. And and we get it just through no dialogue at all. Like relationships have been repaired as much as they possibly can be. But yet it's another death blow to this family. Now dad's gone. Now dad's out of the picture. And it's, it is, it's, it's heart wrenching uh, moment in the film. I guess he makes his peace before he goes. Mm-hmm. So you give him the honorable hero's death, right? So that's a nice way, like on the pyre of flames that are stoked from mm-hmm. loyalty and humanity and fatherhood. Then I guess he goes out like a champ mm-hmm. and he still goes out. Yeah. And so in the moment, I think he's given his kids 10, 15 seconds to escape these. But the sum total of that is when it's done, you've lost him. And they really need him. Yeah, That doesn't mean that mom's not capable. She's entirely capable on her own and of her own. Yeah, And the movie does a good job of showing that. But he's out of the picture. And again, we're talking about horror. We're not talking about ordinary people or in the bedroom or one of these overrun <laughs> the family bed, dramas. In you, the you, bedroom. Don't you? you know yeah, 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 yeah. Where I, if I'm able to put away the aliens and the supernatural element and think about what the roles of that are as prescribed by the film and related to my life, then I think the movie is operating on a level that if they intended to get there, mm-hmm. I'm going to raise it up to that. And yeah. if they didn't, yeah. then so be it as well. Sometimes you strike gold. They lucked into that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's just masterfully done. Yeah. It, it, but it, it's not overwrought with, you know, the Western scene where the hero dies for 25 minutes. And I don't, <laughs> yeah. it's, I love you. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's I enough. love you. It's and enough. That, and out. It's enough. Yeah, get out, get in and get out. That's like this film to a T, which is one of its strengths. So we get this final kind of confrontation as they reunite with mom. The hordes are are descending here on on the on the homestead. And so they go downstairs into the basement. They have baby. The thing comes down there with them. And it's at this moment when we kind of uh girl sister has this realization that this cochlear provides this frequency that if you know if used at the right amount of pitch you know you can kind of disrupt these creatures for a period of time and you know that i think they use it i think it's that final kind of that that completion of the arc for her to use this device that isn't doing one bit of good for you but it's actually going to do a lot of bit of good for your family and it's gonna it's gonna give them enough time at the end of the day 
I love that too because the brawn, if that's what dad represented, mm-hmm. is ultimately undone by the brains of what mom and daughter have. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is such an interesting play yeah. on the <clears throat> roles of the characters in this film and such an interesting statement without being so heavy-handed as to jam it down your throat. Yeah, you know, yeah. Dad's tried. Mm-hmm. He's tried to get that cochlear device to work. He hasn't been able He's tried to put the strategy pieces up on the board and put the puzzle together, which he hasn't been able to decode. Mm-hmm. He's tried and tried and tried. And it's worked in a survival base level to not move it forward, but not let it regress either. But now at least we're making some progress. Yeah. And it's done through a little bit of luck. She just happens to kind of come upon that moment, but then to quickly pick it up and use it as the weapon that's going to, now present a formidable opposition to these aliens, which have you outclassed 10 to one mm-hmm. is beautiful. So well done. And it's just, I have this earpiece and it gets into his ear and you can almost see his eardrum ready to up rupture. Yeah. Don't you love that. The, yeah. the camera work on mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You can see his eardrum like boom, 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 yeah, boom, pulsating. Boom, 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 yeah. Yep. And then the pitch gets higher and higher and the thing just, topples over Mm -hmm. i really do like i said mars attacks because i think about the aliens heads exploding in those helmets (laughs) with rock and roll right isn't it rock and roll isn't it tom jones i think it is oh yeah (laughs) music tom jones um kind of the same effect but not Mm -hmm. to that but we don't get there like it's enough to knock it out but it's not enough to kill it yet yeah yeah mom still has to like kind of shoot it and then now it's kind of dead i guess the armor though has been removed Mm mm-hmm his his head, this, this plant-like yeah. head is exposed. It is kind of plant-like. Yeah, that's pretty good. And then as they kind of get a, a little alleviation of, oh, my God, we found out how to destroy one of these things. Oh. And then here come the other two, I think. Yeah, the other two of the three. At least two. At least two, yeah. And they're, they're coming in, and it's just enough to kind of have, like, the, just these final parting moments to set up, I guess, the next part, but turning up the frequency on dad's, you know, uh, CB radio and, you know, ready to like really let these creatures have it as mom just cocks the shotgun. And then we get out, like we don't stick around any longer. I think the film knows how long it needs. It's an hour, it's an hour and 30 minutes, but I looked when the credits started, it's like an hour and 23 minutes at that, at that part. It was a quick watch. Is it really only that? Mm-hmm. It's a quick watch, but it feels longer because there's nothing wasted in the movie. Yeah. That's really crazy. I didn't know it was only that. Sh- 80, what'd you say? 83 minutes? Yeah, 83 there when it wow. cuts to black. That's interesting. So then that's that's the end of the film. Now, before we kind of, you know, wrap up with our our, our questions and everything, just a, a couple more things that I think. Um, well, is there any question that the two of them are not going to survive the attack from the final two? No, I think they've, they've risen to the call to action and they've, what they've had to go through through film's duration i think they're more than prepared to handle at least two more of these things as long as you can wall yourself off in this high frequency tonal cochlear device uh fort Mm -hmm. then you're okay so now all we're looking at is the length of power but maybe that doesn't even matter because there's enough of a battery element in her cochlear device where they at least ought to be able to forge an escape in some regard yeah whether Emily Blunt mom is able to shoot them in a de-armored state or not, it doesn't matter. I, You're pretty assured at this point that son, daughter, uh, baby son. Baby brother. Baby brother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mom and daughter. Yep. Like, everybody's going to survive. Yeah. So 
we've given some light. And I know you love endings like this that don't need to have the pretty pink bow on These it. These are my favorite endings. A bit ambi- a bit of ambiguity. Yeah. You got it in spades. Yep. Okay, so at 83 minutes, we're out. 83 minutes. Are you sure about that? Yeah, it was an hour and 23 minutes. Wow. Yeah. That's a trip. Pretty remarkable. $17 million budget on this film. So not like in the 30s, like a lot of these films could potentially be. $350 million gross worldwide. Huge hit. So after marketing and, you know, all those costs come in, uh, profits are stated to be at around $93 million, which... Telling you that's rare in Hollywood. It's rare for a film to like net you profit. When I tell you that a film needs a seven hundred and fifty just to break even is staggering. Like this film's able to kind of bring it in for Paramount here. These are the films that are essential to studio franchise system because, like, for all the Avengers and all the stuff that's going to make money, mm-hmm. it's these spec, quiet, hidden gems that allow uncut gems <clears throat> and things along those lines to be done because they know. This is just going to be a movie we'll be lucky to recoup unless it gets a whirlwind of critical acclaim that people derive the film to see. These movies are so important that oh, yeah. sub sub 40 medium to B plus not quite A list stars like that film is really what you and I like. Mm-hmm. That's that space that you and I really enjoy. Yeah. It's smart, it's original. And it has to make money to perpetuate the ability to continue to make them going forward. Yeah, if you want to do the next Star Trek, you need this one to be able to kind of have some... And then when it comes out, I think this came out like early March. Just had all of March and into April to kind of just kind of go around. And if good word of mouth helps you out, yeah, you're going to have some legs to kind of play around with. Sub 40 that doubles its revenue at the box office as far as into what they returned... POI or ROI return on investment. Mm-hmm. That's huge, man. And this it's the invisible man. It's why that film is so important mm-hmm. to universal right now. Yeah. Because it not only creates a space where they can go forward with it, but it makes them money on minimal investment. 17 to make this movie is minimal. That's mm-hmm. nickels. Yeah. And they bring back almost a hundred yeah. profits. That's great. So I have some questions for you, Matt. I have some for you too, but you go first. Okay. What's your favorite tasting note of the film? Your favorite scene or sequence? Oh boy. Um, I really do enjoy the scene behind the waterfall where dad is mm. showing son. This is where you can let it go for a minute. Yeah. And I love that. Like for the, the heavy, heavy load that this man has to carry in this film, mm-hmm. that it gives him a place to at least let it go so that he can get back to being the backbone that they need him to be. Now, we see mom doing that as well. Yep. Like mom has a moment in the film where we kind of see her letting her guard down and just being human, but dad teaching son, look, your load's going to be immense for the rest of your life, but mm-hmm. in this space here for 30 seconds, you can let it go. I find that to be truly remarkable, and I want to champion that cause for everybody out there. Mm-hmm. It's motivational to me. It's the Rocky Apollo running on the beach scene. It's I find that very, very motivational. And that scene um, will carry me through some time of those. Not to be too crazy and, and weird about this, but that moment is really important as far as what I think I'd like my life to be. Yeah. I would have been like a George Carlin album up there. 
<laughs> I, yeah. I'd really let it out. Yeah, for sure. Because it's all just built up and pent up in me. Mm-hmm. Mine's the grain silo. I think that's a really well shot suspense sequence that relies on camera work, sound, the visual, the situation, not the dialogue, not what's happening, like like all those elements, but it's all in how it's staged. And I love the lighting. We didn't talk enough about that, but like a lot of natural light used in this film. So some things are in dark and shadow, hard to kind of see at times, but the illumination that we get is important to what we're supposed to be paying attention to. All right, Matt, what is the... I need to take a shot moment of the film. I wouldn't be surprised if we have the same one on here. I'm just going to go ahead and go first. It's stepping on that nail, and it's the way it's set up 20-ish minutes prior is just a ticking, that ticking time bomb element that we've mentioned, that Hitchcock motif of that's been set up. The character doesn't know about it. I know about it. I'm waiting for it to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen, and I think that's done so well in this film. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not quite the same, but it's moments away. Mine is about three minutes later in the film when she's in the bathtub, mm-hmm. foot penetrated. Yeah, the hand from the creature is coming up the stairwell, and she's in the bathtub mid labor. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Yeah, it's just how do you survive <clears throat> that? And then it's done so tastefully too, because you just get a shot of the porcelain mm-hmm. and a little river of blood. It's kind of, I don't know, this sounds awful, but leaking from her to the drain. Mm -hmm. It's so loaded. Like the blood, the drain, what's coming, what's in the stairwell. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Loaded. So that's it for me. Who's the master distiller on this film? John Krasinski, not even close. Mm -hmm. Like we have a new entry into my list, or I shouldn't say we. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say we and I. I have a new entry into the list of unrefined or unrecognized talent in Hollywood. And it's John Krasinski Mm -hmm. with a bullet. Yeah. This is masterfully done, masterfully acted, masterfully directed, whatever elements he added to the script. I'm sure it elevated it. (laughs) I'd like to think that. Yeah. It's him. It's him. Me too. Yeah. And primarily because as I always think of him on the office, um, Ed Helms, character gives him the nickname big tuna because he brought tuna for lunch for like one day, and that was that was his nickname for him. I got to say, Big Tuna can direct a film, and he can certainly kind of command all the elements within a reasonable budget, and to kind of deliver something that I think was, yeah, taking sound out, like making it uncomfortable for people to eat popcorn in the films is no easy feat. So I think this is a success on all fronts for him. So what do you think, Matt? Let's rate the film. Before we do that, let me ask you a question. Okay. Being that A Quiet Place 2 Mm -hmm. is a prequel to this film, what is your... What's a prequel sequel? Right. Yeah. What is your overall outlook or propensity for success or failure for, I know you're going to see it, but what are you, what are you walking into that movie thinking? Well, it already has two things working against it for me. One being the origin of the onset, which I think this film didn't need and it proved it. We're going to see that obviously just based on the trailer. So I'm not looking too forward to that. I hope it's very interesting to say the least. Uh, and then the second part element is it looks like it's going a little too walking daddy for me with kind of meandering yep. with, 
the rest of society, which naturally you would do. My hope is that this film kind of takes a lesson from other sequels and if, if this was the alien of this franchise, that if you're going to totally go all out and really kind of blow it up, you need to make part two the aliens to this alien and really really kind of blow it up a little bit if you're going to go there. Don't just half-ass it. That's I think that's the only thing that might save it for me. I think I might walk out of that saying, hmm, I don't know if I needed part two. That's where I am too, especially a prequel sequel. Yeah. If we're... If we know in Krasinski's war room that these aliens have very, very tough suit of armor that they wear, Mm -hmm. then I don't want to watch them create the environment that provides them sanctuary and in so doing discover that guns don't work against these things. That sounds boring. And then so then for me, I get to, well, then the other active protagonist or I'm sorry, antagonist has to be fellow mankind. And like I said earlier, that is so tired. I'm just exhausted with that story. That's why the last three weeks has been pretty refreshing because I think we picked films that don't rely on that particular element of it's going into something, it's running away from something, it's keeping something at bay, and it's not really meandering with the other people and how they're dealing with the same thing. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So what do you think? We got Rock Gut, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. I'm going to let you go first. Top Shelf. This is a top shelf film for me. I found myself putting myself in the situation of the characters in the movie. It's infinitely rewatchable. It's enjoyable. It's tension ridden. It's scary. It's heartfelt. It's sincere. It, yeah, top shelf. This is a really, really good film. Um, again, I don't know if I need to see the second one like we talked about, but we'll see it. I will. Yeah. But yeah, this was a really strong entry. This is, we're in an unpre- unprecedented territory for you, Matt, because this cask, you have given a top shelf rating to all three films. And if you had told me we're going to do apocalyptic films, I would have been like, yeah, probably more along lines of just sort of callish area for yeah. me. All three of them. Top shelf. Top you shelf. haven't done that for any other film cask, and mm-hmm. we've done Hitchcock, and we've done some pretty good stuff. So I think that speaks a lot to the films that... And this was a cast kind of thrown together at the last minute, too, thanks to Bond's uh, delay. But that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I wonder if that's going to continue on for you going into next week. We'll see. It might. It might. (laughs) I'm not going to go quite top shelf. I'm going to go more single barrel with with this film. Uh, Not that it isn't great in singing and praising its accolades. I think there's very little wrong with this film. I think it's a great watch. It's suspenseful. For PG-13 horror... We rag on that all the time, and we want a, like a good hard R with our horror. We want it to be nasty and, and not kind of safe. And this kind of, you know, it doesn't feel safe, but it doesn't let the rating restrict what it can do with the story and how it can stage suspense. It's really unique. It's another great entry in from like 2011 to like still going strong of just great horror entries by untested directors really playing with sensory elements within horror. You know, I saw this in don't breathe and films like you're next and the witch and like all these great entries in that time period. This is just another one in there. It follows. It follows. Yeah. Yeah. A single barrel entry for me. Uh, I want to see how this film kind of, kind of ages before I can, uh, maybe it might get a a top shelf later on, but uh, this is a, this is a great entry for for horror, for the post-apocalyptic cask, and for for this show. So 
there we have that there. So why don't we wrap up today's episode with a nightcap? It is a pretty good soundtrack, and it's kind of understated because it's not like at the forefront with like memorable things, but it definitely adds a tone as music should within film. So let's wrap up with a nightcap. You know, being that John Krasinski wasn't the first kind of director to kind of fall into this like whore and kind of being like, hey, where did this guy come from? But who's another? We have we had filmmakers like Jordan Peele, kind of from the the veins of comedy on Comedy Central, come in with. Two pretty solid horror entries. Who do you think's another filmmaker out there that maybe they've been making films for a while and they've never done like horror? I'm talking like horror. Yeah. Not like thriller. Yeah. Like psychological thriller, like David Fincher, what he does. Who's a director you think could tackle like a straight horror film? Well, you just said it. It's yeah. Fincher for me. <laughs> I know you do well. <laughs> it is David Fincher. Yeah. If you take Seven, which is, I think, his <clears throat> quintessential film. Mm-hmm. And you look at the moments of that that present in memorable ways on film, whether that's any of the seven people that have been killed Mm -hmm. or what's in the box. A lot of horror success is not letting the audience see what is coming until it's absolutely necessary. And that entire film is based on that premise. For him, I don't want monsters. I don't want exorcisms. I want a straight, old-fashioned, haunted house movie. Mm, That's what I want Fincher to do. I don't care how we get there. I don't care if it's the bank repossesses it in this family. I, I, I don't care how we get there. But I want a traditional haunted house film with, like, Warren kind of esque family tropes. Okay. It doesn't have to be the Warrens insofar as Ed and Lorraine investigating but that sort of family dynamic trying to exist in that. Ooh. And I want him to present it in a way that gives me just enough until the bomb finally explodes, which has been the theme of the day for me. And I think he's able to deliver that. Brad Pitt has to be in that movie. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah Brad nice, Pitt. nice reunion for them. Sure. Okay. I thought a lot about, about horror and, and directors, and you know, some of the horror that I tend to like comes from regional folklore of where they're the directors from and you know kind of what they're what they grew up into which is you know different for everybody if you tell me kenneth branagh <laughs> i'm not it'd be too regal there'd be too many soliloquies in that indeed movie. i'm actually going to go with alfonso caron mm-hmm. uh here's a mexican filmmaker that has made some whether that's prisoner of azkaban or children of men or gravity or roma i think he has a pulse on how to make very ethereal films and i think ethereal works pretty well in horror and especially if you could tackle some type of mexican folklore that maybe we haven't seen and keep it small like some casita maybe poltergeisty type thing with he's such a master filmmaker and he just understands the craft you know better than most filmmakers i think do because he adds a personal touch to it like if, if he feels like he's pulling from like stories that were told to him as a kid and I'd love to see that element done in horror. I think, and it would look beautiful. <laughs> First of all, it would look immaculate. Uh, yeah, that's who I want. I want to see. Um, I try to think of. I, I think I flirted with Fincher for a bit, but I was like, eh, man, I might pick that one. 
I even thought about maybe someone like Christopher Nolan, but he, the way he fits his genres fits pretty well. So that's why I went with Alfonso. I think that would that could be something pretty unique. Yeah. Yeah. I think either one of those guys would be a cool entry into this new genre. And it would be so left field for them too. That's what also I thought to like, what would just be like a 180 for their like, I'm going to do this horror film now. And everyone would be like, well, you're doing what? Because it's not, it's not the most regarded genre in Hollywood. It's, it's kind of just bastardized there in the corner sometimes. What do you think if Hooper, Hoop, sorry, Hooper or Spielberg in 2020 was given the budget to do it right? What do you think about either one of those two choices? I probably am okay with Hooper. I don't know about Spielberg. Yeah. At this point. Yeah, I, don't, I think he's kind of done. Because I just don't know if Spielberg can deliver anything without Tom Hanks anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean by mm-hmm. that? Not necessarily, but like that range of guy. Yeah. But Hooper, I think, still has got some legs. Yeah. Anyway, you can talk John Carpenter coming back and doing one with no. a real budget? No, he's done. I think so, too. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Pretty sure. All right. Pretty positive. He's done in 96. Don't you have a like direct line to him somehow? Can't you call him up? <laughs> well, You've got to be his biggest fan in the world. His biggest fan ever. Yeah. I wanted to go see uh, that kind of traveling show he was doing with his son playing concert. And if you bought like the $400 ticket, it was like a meet and greet backstage and you could get a bunch of stuff autographed. I was like, I'm taking these to get autographed. That would be cool. That would have been a dream. But hey, maybe he'll do it again. So we got a lot of stuff coming for you in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Matt, why don't you set up? We're going to do a one-shot for you uh, this week. Why don't you go ahead and set that up for us? What we have coming up is a tournament styled in the way the NCAA basketball tournament does their March Madness. I've seeded the top 16 MCU films, 1 through 16, and created a 16-team bracket that's single elimination. And midweek next week, you and I are going to play this out and determine who the grand champion of these 16 are. What's it based on? So it's based on the ratings that IMD viewers have, or that IMDb, IMDb have given it based on its viewers' okay. um, appreciation or whatever. Nice. So we'll weigh out viewers. That was actually what seeded it 1 through 16, and then we'll also consider how much money it made, and then we will consider impact in the totality of the MC universe. Can we throw rewatchability into that too? Sure. Yeah, yeah, we can. I can tell you there's some really interesting matchups coming up in the first round. Oh, I'm excited. I haven't seen this. So I'm I'm actually, I don't even want to see it until you bring it that day. I want to go in blind and we just see it and we just got to talk about it and figure it out. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. And so we'll come up with our grand champion. Okay. Um, I can tell everybody right now mm-hmm. that the overall number one seed in the tournament is in game mm. that's the number one overall seed okay but there's some interesting matchups at eight nine and seven ten especially that are going to be really really tough okay so uh there's several others as well yeah since we can't have march madness since that's just been canceled this year what would the ba- what better way than to do our own but then to do a a movie flair to it and especially as something as popular as the marvel cinematic universe something that is very widely watched across the world so Perfect. And for all of you out there that have been keeping up, you know, we're trying to do something midweek to keep this um, entertaining and give you something to do with uh, the state of things right now. If you if you're the person out there that's like, I wish they would do something with music, we have something really special coming in two weeks for you as well. But let's get through the NCAA tournament 
movie yeah. styled first. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, the bad, that's going to be a blast. I'm looking forward to it. I don't think there'll be agreement on everything between the two of us on this. So yeah, we'll have to figure a way to flip a coin. That'll, or something. That itself will be interesting. Indeed. <laughs> but okay, so we have that coming probably on, on Wednesday. That'll drop. And then next Sat- you set up next Saturday, next Saturday, we'll start a brand new cast. Matt, I think I set up a couple weeks ago when I said I was so excited for Bond. I was building it up that it was my favorite cast that we were going to do. And then just had to switch gears at the last minute, which it was fine. This, these last three films have been a blast to talk about, and I'm glad we we have been able to. Yeah. I think this is the most excited I've been for a film review cask next. Really? Uh, of all of them? I think so. Wow. Because I think of the weight that all three of these films bring, and there's a film in there, film three, that you haven't seen that I've been talking up to you for years now. So we're actually going to do another director-oriented cask. This one built built all around uh, William Friedkin. Now, if that's like, who's that guy? You know William Friedkin. William Friedkin brought the world The Exorcist in 1973. But the film he did before that as equally as important and what it did for, for film cinema and its protagonist especially, antagonist maybe, <laughs> is we're going to cover from 1971, The French Connection. I'm excited to talk about this film because the first time I saw it, Matt, was actually in your class, and I remember your specific point of view on it, and I can't wait to watch it with you and talk about it and kind of see just everything that that film represents, and for everything that we mentioned, you know, our favorite era of Hollywood is like that 66 to 73, and we've done one film in that era, and that was The Graduate. I can't wait to tackle another film in that because of how it just changed the trajectory of film character and filmmaking. I mean, it's these people, they're just like, they're just importing heroin. And like, if you ever want to see like, like how to make heroin, like watch the French connection. Going to meet a really interesting iconic film character. That's Gene Hackman's Popeye Doyle. We brought him up couple times in the last two or three weeks and we're going to revisit that in spades next week and i'm excited to talk about the end of it too because the end is another one of those types of endings that either is like yeah man i loved it or like oh that frustrated the hell out of me yeah it's a great discussion and then just kind of alluding to it's going to lead up to the exorcist as well and that's going to be Matt, I'm going to try and do my research there because I've, I've, there's been a lot of podcast episodes tied around The Exorcist because it's such a monumental film for horror, especially. Yeah. And I want to make sure we do that one right in with some justice. And I think we're going to have a really great episode for you that week. Well, you've already named two of the three. Do you want to do the third? Do you want to leave that in? Maybe I should give them the third. Just go ahead and give the third because it's impossible to find. Right. Actually, I think you can find it on iTunes to rent for like $3.99. So. I highly recommend this. So week three, we're going to tackle a film called Sorcerer. And it's a film he did with Roy Scheider in 1977. And it's a remake of the of Henry George Clouseau's film, The Wages of Fear, which is also phenomenal. But this film is about men trying to transport nitroglycerin through the South American jungle. And you can't go more than like eight or nine miles an hour. The slightest bump in the road ignites this thing. And talk about a suspense ride. A soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. The thing that killed this film and probably killed Billy Friedkin's career, it opened like the week before or the week after Star Wars. Yep. 1977. It had no chance. So we'll talk about all that that week, but I highly recommend it because it was a lost film for so long. And I think it's finally gotten a decent Blu-ray release and it's an intense ride from start to finish. So, yeah, that's going to be the cask. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about him as a filmmaker and especially some of the things he passed on. 
that I was mentioning to you had a chance to really make a lot of money and just kind of said no. <laughs> Such is the story of lots of people in Hollywood. Yes. What they passed on. Excellent. I'm so excited. So Matt, cheers. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers to the listeners. Go download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcast, you'll be able to find us. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a, a review on any of those platforms. Subscribe to us. That way you get the episodes right away as soon as they hit. But thank you to all the listeners, to all the people that that chime in each week. We greatly appreciate it. And I'm going to get going because I've been wanting to, to go yell really loud for a long time. And I think I'm going to go do that in my backyard after this. I'm just glad that we'll be able to get back to a state here sooner or later that isn't social distancing because the 12 feet between us and the podcast booth here is ridiculously hard to navigate. Yeah, you and I surely aren't social distancing. We've cheered about, we've toasted about six times today. One more for good measure. One more for that. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. Be safe and we will see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. A Quiet Place is property of Paramount Pictures and Platinum Dunes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, shh.